Raising kids is hands down the messiest journey you'll ever take. You're listening to the Motherhood in the Making podcast. I'm your host, Leva Lurie. I'm a psychologist, a mom of four, and I'm here to guide you through it with your relationships and sanity intact. Today we're going to talk about what is known as separation anxiety, but you'll probably know it more like, please don't leave me. I don't want to go to school. I'm not going to school. Can you sleep with me? Can you stay with me? Just five more minutes. That's how we know it. We know it as kids who are clingy, who are um, uh, worrisome, who are um, uh, distracted. You know, they can't really play. They don't want to go to friends' houses. They don't want to be places be left on their own. They don't want you to leave the room at night at bedtime. And now back to school, they don't want to be left at school. Now, this is very common with younger children and can continue on. And so I want to talk a little bit more about what separation anxiety is, uh, what's normal, what's not. How do I know what's going on for my kid? What's going on for me? And what can I do about it? How can I support my kid? So this came up, uh, the thought to do this Facebook live came up for me yesterday when I spoke, was speaking to a client, we're going to call her Amy. Uh, that's not her real name, of course, but I thought, oh, I'm going to call her Amy. <laughs> I'm talking to Amy and Amy sends me a message. The morning has not gone as smoothly as I was hoping it would go. And she hops on with me just a few minutes late. And uh, oh, I had such a hard morning, she says to me, my daughter did not want to separate. And this isn't my two-year-old, she says, you know, the little, this isn't the little one who you might expect being small would feel more insecure and vulnerable. It's my five-year-old who doesn't want to go into kindergarten. She doesn't want to go into her kindergarten class. For anyone who's listening, who's not in Israel, I'm using the uh, North American terms. Um, here in Israel, of course, we call it gun. She didn't want to go into gun. And we've all been there, right? If you haven't been there, I don't know what you're doing listening to this. <laughs> Because uh, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about those moments where, you know, I need to go. I need to go. You know, Leva's waiting for me. I have an appointment. I can't be here. I need to go. I've got work to do. I need time for myself. I need space. I need distance. And my kid doesn't want to separate. They're clinging to my leg. They start to cry. They're screaming. They're chasing me to the door. Have you been there? Do you know what I'm talking about? This is a real struggle. This is a real struggle for me as a parent, and it's a real struggle for my child. And I don't want to leave them, Amy says to me. You know, when I was a kid, she says, my parents would just drop and go. I mean, that was the culture. That was what was expected. And I kind of knew as a, at a young age that there was no one listening. Even if I was going to express my discomfort, my distress, my anxiety, my parents weren't equipped. I, sh I, I knew this subconsciously already as a child. And so I just accepted from a very young age that I'm on my own here. So fast forward, Amy's an adult and her five-year-old doesn't want to separate. And she doesn't want to do the same thing to her kids that her parents did to her, which was just, just go, just go and don't even talk to me about it. Amy wants to be attentive. She wants to be sensitive to her child's emotional world, her emotional needs. She wants to be present. She wants to be supportive. She wants to be comforting. But here's what happens is that because I want to give my child what I didn't have, what tends to happen is I swing to the opposite end. And what's happening here is that my own discomfort with separation 
comes into play. My own unresolved anxieties with separation come into my unconscious awareness. That means that it's happening, but I don't know that it's happening until Lita tells me it's happening and I start to pay attention to it. And then I realize, oh yeah, I don't like separation either. I feel really anxious when my child protests the separation and I don't know what to do. And I either push them off in a fight response or I kind of freeze like a deer in the headlights. Like, what do I do? I turn to the, to the Ganenit, like help please. And she's useless. <laughs> or I run out of there and I flee. Bye. See you. Bye. And I get out of there. Just get me away from it. Cause I can't handle the discomfort of it. And that's because I'm being reminded my child's anxiety is reminding me, so to speak, an emotional memory an association with my own anxiety. And I haven't had a chance to resolve my own anxiety, right? Remember, Amy? She didn't have parents there who even recognized that she was uncomfortable, let alone respond to her. It just didn't even exist. But it did exist for Amy. Amy did feel uncomfortable in separation because separ separation, the anxiety associated with separation is normal. And not only is it normal, it's necessary. It is a mechanism that is wired into children to keep them safe. So we have associations, unconscious associations with our own anxiety that get triggered in our interactions with our kids, particularly when we're leaving them at gun and they feel uncomfortable in the separation. So what's going on for my kid here? As I was mentioning, the anxiety associated with separation is a normal, natural, and necessary reaction, response to separation. If children did not notice when they were being left, they would be far too vulnerable in the world and um, exposed to threat. So there is a biological mechanism, a biological neurological mechanism that when a child registers separation, they get frightened and in their fear triggers an attachment response and they seek proximity and closeness. And the parent picks up on those cues and gets close to the child. This is the circle of security. This is attachment at work. Now, sometimes we have some, um, a break in the communication, something, something gets missed. And what often happens is that the child's expression of distress is misinterpreted, but what's more is it can be triggering. Does this ever happen to you where your child speaks in a certain tone, for example, that just grades on your nerves and you just want to push them away? And it's so irritating that you don't even think, you know, what's going on for you. You just want to get the hell away from them. That's an example of a, of a miscommunication where we misinterpret our child's communication and we judge it and label it as annoying. It's threatening to us. It pushes us away. I don't want it. And what we don't recognize is that we're actually having our own personal reaction to their neediness and to their attachment demands and protests and needs and wants because it triggers within us our unmet needs, just like Amy, who herself was not, her attachment needs were not met. They didn't even exist to her parents, but they did exist. And so she had to split off from them. She had to dissociate from them. I mean, you ch choose, your, choose your defense mechanism, whatever you wanna call it. She had to pretend that they didn't exist. She had to deny them. She had to repress them, suppress them, whatever. We won't get technical here. The point is, is that, they didn't go anywhere. That anxiety didn't go anywhere. That need for comfort and support didn't go anywhere. It creeps back in, fast forward, when she drops her daughter off and her daughter protests, Amy is left un, 
sure about what to do. So we understand why Amy's daughter is feeling uncomfortable because she is suddenly acutely aware of the separation. And that's, an, that's, a, that's a mechanism that is inborn in human beings. But why Amy's daughter and not the, another kid? Have you, ever been dropped, have you ever dropped off your kid and you're like holding them close because they don't want to let go and then some other kid just kind of strolls in and hangs up their bag and, and waltzes in and you're like, why is that kid having such an easy time? Like what? Why is this so hard for me? What's going on for Amy's daughter? What's going on for her? Why is it so hard for her? So what happens when we are experiencing separation anxiety is that we are acutely aware of our separateness and it's scary for us. It's scary because there's a sense that I am out and abandoned and I don't know how to get back. I don't know how to get back. And this can be triggered by instances of extreme fear and anxiety and uncertainty and unpredictability when we actually experience that. It's actually happened. So I have a daughter who has a hard time separating and who has actual separation and anxiety. I mean, it's, it's not, not a normal separation anxiety that, you know, that happens, but she actually was suffering from, you know, it was more on the disordered end of the spectrum. And why is that? Because, I mean, I have many theories, but there wasn't, there was an instance where she was set, we were separated and it was terrifying for her. And she never was able to come back to baseline because I didn't recognize how fearful she was and her, and her fear, like I had mentioned, was triggering my own fear and my own separation. And then I was just scared. It just scared me. And so we're both kind of left in this state of fear. Amy's daughter, as she was mentioning, had an accident in the summer. It just happened that Amy was just chatting. She's like, oh, well, you know, and she fell from that tree. That's not what happened. I'm just, I'm giving you a different example, just in case, so you don't identify her. She fell off from the tree. She fell from a tree and uh, she was just climbing and she fell from the tree. And I knew about this actually, because Amy messaged me uh, one evening and she said, uh, I can't make it. My daughter fell from a tree. Um, I'm not going to be able to make it. And we never talked about it again, which kind of struck me because it was quite traumatic. It was quite frightening, uh, a child falling from the tree and, you know, last minute, oh, I can't make it because she's falling from the tree and I need to take her to the emergency room. And we never spoke of it. Now I'm keeping Amy's identity private. It was much more extreme than falling from a tree. What happened to her daughter was much more extreme, a much more frightening uh, accident. So think of something worse. Think of, okay, my kid falling from a tree, that's scary, but think of something worse. <laughs> it was terrifying. It's a parent's worst nightmare. She thought her daughter was dead. Turns out she was fine. She had a few grazes. Praise the good Lord, she was fine, but it was terrifying. And not only was it terrifying for Amy, but it was terrifying for her daughter. And we never spoke of it again. And so we've never came back to make sense of what happened. And that means that our brain gets stuck in this trauma. Our brain gets stuck in high alert, waiting for it to happen again. We don't, haven't, our brain hasn't come back to uh, homeostasis, to baseline. Oh yeah, I'm safe again. Oh yeah, all is well in the world. Scary things happen, but then we can be safe again. Amy didn't experience that, but more importantly, her daughter didn't experience it. And so Amy was saying that, you know, my daughter doesn't want me, she doesn't want to leave my, she doesn't want me to leave her side at bedtime either. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so it came up, oh yeah, this accident that happened. Whoa, of course. That makes perfect sense. And it's not a reflection of your parenting. I think it's really important to say that this is not a reflection of you. 
this is not does not mean you're doing a bad job it does not mean that you're a bad parent it does not mean that you're failing your child it means that we need to pay attention whenever we find ourselves stuck in our parenting it means that we need to pay attention and that's the first step of the five-step framework that's the pause that's where we pause and we suspend our impulse to judge and we pay attention and observe what's happening in this moment and when i pause and observe what's happening in this moment speaking for amy i reflect on my own experience being parented and i acknowledge that it's actually um hard for me to separate it reminds me of what it was separation was like for me it's hard for me to connect to this because I was never held in mind. It's hard for me to hold my child in mind. I resist it. I want to push it away. I don't want it. I just want it to end. I just want it to stop. And when I connect to my child's experience, if I make room for it by giving space first and foremost to my own emotional experience, how hard it is for me, how triggering it is for me. And so it brings me to my own experience of separation, my own experience of abandonment, and my most importantly, my own fear. Now, if I'm going to connect to my own fear and my own discomfort um, in my fear, and we're not just, I'm not talking about fear like, ew, a spider, gross. Or, oh, I don't want to watch that movie. It's a horror movie. It's, it's scary. I'm talking about the fear you experience when you're left. When you feel unwanted, when you're abandoned, when you're neglected, when you have these big experiences and you're all by yourself and no one is there to help you. That's what I'm talking about when I use the word fear. Just an example of how we can use words, and they're often very short, <laughs> feeling words, mad, sad, happy, glad. They're such small words, but they can hold so much meaning. And so fear, in this case, I'm really talking about this real primitive fear, a primitive fear of being lost and abandoned and out in the wild with no one to protect you sheer vulnerability and exposure and it's terrifying when i connect it's very it's so scary i don't want to know about it and so i deny that experience but when my child is experiencing separation anxiety not only is it recommended it is necessary in order for me to hold my child's experience in mind to hold mine in mind first no one did it for me and so here's where the repair comes in i need to repair that experience and give myself permission to know that i was also left I was also abandoned. I was also frightened, scared, and alone. This can be hard because in so doing, what I'm essentially doing is holding my caregiver accountable. Another client later, uh, yesterday, uh, later in the day, another client was saying, what's the point? What's the point if they can't do anything about it? Uh, what's the point if they're never going to change? We hold our parents accountable so that we can be the child and we don't have to be the parent anymore, so that we can give ourselves permission and our inner child permission to exist. And so we can actually listen to her and hear what she has to say and feel what she has to feel and hold her in mind. When we do that and we exercise that practice, we are better equipped to do it for our child. And now it is less threatening for me. I'm far more patient. I'm far more present. I'm far more permitting of my child's experience. I'm less threatened by it. I don't take it personally. I'm um, I don't, uh, I don't get wrapped up in judgment. What the hell's wrong with me? What the hell's wrong with my kid? I'm more present and I take my time and I even, you know, push off, push my morning off a little bit so that I can be there and just be with my kid in the moment and just pay attention. This is really hard. This is really hard. Here's, here's what we need to do though, is that we need to do two things. First of all, we need to figure out what's going on for our kid. If there's anything deeper going on in our child's sense of safety. Maybe there was a traumatic experience like Amy's daughter who had an accident. 
maybe there's something uncomfortable in the kindergarten class itself that doesn't feel safe for your child. That is possible. We need to consider the possibility. Um, we also need to consider that our child has experienced a sense of separation that was frightening for them. We may also need to take responsibility for our own actions. My daughter, for example, when I when she was born, I was depressed. And we know clinically, uh, empirically as well, that when uh, an infant is uh, in the care of a, of a caregiver who is uh, in a depression or uh, is experiencing a high level anxiety, they usually come together. Um, the child themselves uh, feels the parents' withdrawal. And so the child feels alone. And so my daughter, I suspect, also felt very alone because, um, because I wasn't there emotionally. Uh, or I was there and then I wasn't there and then I was there and then I wasn't there. Also, just my emotional states that I brought from my own childhood and, and she's just mirrored them because that's what kids do. They act like their parents. They adopt their parents. They, they take on the world of the parent. If the world of the parent is chaotic, then the child inhabits a chaotic world. That's the beauty, the beauty of the parent-child relationship. The beauty of the bond is that our children are so close to us that they actually take on, use our minds as a guide. And so it's really important that what's going on in our mind reflects reality so that we can be a solid base and let our kids know, hey, you're safe. Of course, we need to feel safe in order to convey that message. And so the first thing we need to do, as I was mentioning, is we need to pause, okay? We need to pause and recognize that this something's not right here. We need to suspend our judgment. Judgment that looks like, oh, I hate this kid. They're so annoying. What the hell's wrong with this gun? It must be unsafe. I'm a terrible parent. I've done something wrong. That's the judgment. These are the thoughts that tell us that something is bad. And they're there for a reason. We're just trying to make sense of it. But we always end up at a dead end. So we pause and we suspend the impulse to judge. We go, oh, there's a judgment. Okay, if I wasn't blaming the gun, then what would I be paying attention to? Well, I would be observing my, I would be observing my child's discomfort. What does that bring up for me? Oh, I don't want to pay attention to that. Okay. Well, if you wanted to pay attention to that, what would you pay attention to? Oh, I guess it would just remind me of my own experience growing up. And I don't want to think about that. I don't want to feel that. Why not? What, what comes up for you when you feel that? It's so too scary for me. And it's so sad because no one was there for me. It is really sad. That's true. That happened. That's real. It is really sad. And we make space for that. And when we make space for that, as I said, we can make space for our child's mind and we can recognize that their mind is separate from ours and they have a separate experience. And we can start to get curious about it. What's going on for them? And then oh, suddenly we remember, oh yeah, there was that really traumatic accident this summer. And ever since then, she hasn't wanted me to leave her side is what Amy said. And that's when my ears pricked up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's really important. And uh, we can start to uh, get curious about what's going on for our kid. And ultimately, we need to respond. And we need to respond in a way that uh, once we've checked all the bases and made sure that our child is actually safe in this uh, daycare or kindergarten class or grade one, two, three, four, five class, that they're actually safe, then we can start to get curious about where they might be feeling unsafe and start reassuring them and letting them know uh, when there are scary events that happen, that we talk about them, that it was real, it happened. And there was, um, there was an experience there. And we, and we always come back to the end of the story, which is, and you're safe, and we're safe again. And so once we have done that for ourselves, we're better equipped to do it for our child. And we talk about separation, we talk about 
Um, and we don't just talk about it rationally. We actually sit in those feelings, like how sad it is. And, and then we leave, <laughs> we leave and we work on this. This is a work in progress. It takes time. It takes time to let ourselves know what's going on for us, to connect to our kids' experience. It takes time to um, bring our awareness to that invisible string. If you haven't read this book, it's actually a really fantastic book that um, has been very helpful to me and my child, uh, not, just, not just to me as a parent, but to me as a parent who was once a child herself, to understand how disconnected I felt in the world and why I felt so frightened in the world for so many years. And because I really did feel profoundly alone and to uh, recognize the need for the invisible string, which is another word for the internal, internalized parent, an internalized mental model of a parent, a secure parent, a parent who is attentive and present and who is there for me. And so not only do we need to reestablish a sense that I'm here for you, even when we're not together, but that we need to actually be, for our, be there for our kids when we are together. When we are together, I'm here for you so that when we're not together, you know that I'm here for you. And that's how attachment is so important um, because our children take with them a part of us and either they're taking with them a parent who is attentive and present and, um, uh, you know, accompanying them in their minds or a parent who is distant and distracted, punishing, critical. And so that's the parent they take with them. And that's the voice that they hear as they go out into the world. I think it's important that before you even think about what to do is that you recognize that this is real. This isn't a problem. It's not necessarily a problem. As soon as we call it a problem, we are in judgment. We want to just suspend that judgment and recognize that this is a real experience and get curious about that experience. In order to get curious about that experience, we need to be willing to see it for ourselves. So I need to be willing to experience the terror that I feel when I I'm aware of the fact that I'm alone in this world and that I have no one to turn to when I'm most vulnerable, most frightened, most insecure that I don't have anyone to turn to and what that feels like. And to know and take responsibility for myself and recognize and take responsibility as a parent to recognize that my child feels the same way and to reflect that back to them. How scary is that? It's hard. And then to reassure them that I'm here with you even when I'm not with you. Something I like to do with my son I used to do with him when he was smaller in gun is I would draw a heart on his hand and I would draw a heart on my hand and we would, um, and we had a whole ceremony around it, uh, how I would draw it. Uh, we would hug. So we would charge up the hearts. You know, they were, they were hugs. I would draw a hug on his hand. And so anytime he looked at it, I would say to him, whenever you look at it, you press it, I'm going to feel your hug. And when I look at my hand, I'm going to, and I miss you, I'm going to press it and you're gonna feel my hug. And then I would pick him up and I'd say, did you feel my hug? I pressed it. Did he feel it? No, he didn't feel it. But what he's being um, reassured is that I'm thinking about you. I thought about you today. Other things that you can do with your kids is that when you pick them up after this day, right? And you pick them up and then the gun and it says to you, oh, they had a great day. Of course they had a great day because it's a great gun. They're having a good time socializing. They're having fun, but they kind of feel sort of sad and alone and, um, and they're not really sure if they exist. Uh, to you when you're not together. So when you pick them up, you can bring them something and say, oh, I thought of you and I got this for you. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but it can be like, you know, I was in the supermarket today and I, you mentioned how much you love red apples. I got you red apples at home. It can be something that you do anyways. Oh, I thought about you today when I was 
when I was um, making my coffee. I just thought of you. You don't even, it doesn't have to be an object that you bring to them, but I thought of you. I was thinking about you and I was wondering what you were doing. And I was wondering if you were, if you were having um, your lunch at that time, I was having my lunch and I was thinking about your lunch. How was, did you enjoy your lunch? Did you like it? Um, you can put things in their, in their snacks to let them know that you're thinking about them and help them to think about you so that they have you in mind. So those are some tricks to reassure our children that they exist to us even when we're not together. They need to know is that even when we separate, we're still together and we're still connected and I always come back. I always come back to you. And of course, as I mentioned, if there was any trauma uh, for your child, that needs, that needs attention. Uh, it can become problematic when um, your child might need some extra help if it is disrupting their functioning, that they can't go to school, they can't focus in school, they're, not, they're withdrawn, they're not participating, that when you leave, they don't go and play with their friends and sort of hold space for it but that they are not functioning in school and they're not participating. This is what we need to get curious to wonder if maybe our kids need some extra help. And that's fine. That's not a bad thing. It's actually a really wonderful thing if you're able to recognize that. Uh, I need help sometimes and uh, my kids need help. And that has, that's not a reflection of me. If anything, it's a reflection of me as a parent taking responsibility for myself and my actions and my role as their caregiver. That's another episode of the Motherhood in the Making podcast. I'm your host, Lipa Lurie. Thank you so much for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about me and what I do, come on over to my website at www.libalurie.com. That's L-I-B-A-L-U-R-I-E.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.